Well, this is uh, the final one in our series uh, exploring the beautiful story that's given us our name, the Emmaus Road uh, story. Uh, we've had the Emmaus Way to pray uh, with Bill, the Emmaus Way of hospitality with Hannah, the Emmaus Way of witness with Miriam Schwafield, and today I'm going to uh, help us to think about the Emmaus Way to read the Bible. Uh, I'm not going to do the story because you've heard it lots of times, but you remember how those two commuters are walking home from the capital city, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, discussing the events of the Easter weekend, and Jesus turns up walking with them, and they don't recognize him. And then uh, as they uh, begin to talk to him, we read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus used the Old Testament, the scriptures they had, to show how it all points to him. And then a little later the couple reflected after Jesus had disappeared, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Imagine Jesus leading you in a Bible study and how your heart would burn within you when that happened. Jesus clearly knew the scriptures, he loved them, and he was able to expound them skillfully and powerfully. As a kid, he kind of got stranded at the temple one day. His mum and dad kind of forgot about him. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever forgotten one of your dearly loved children, but uh, it's some comfort that that happened to uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She uh, lost Jesus. Embarrassing when it's the Messiah. And uh, he, he, they found him and he was there plying the religious leaders, the theological brains of the day with questions because of his love, even as a 12-year-old, for the Bible. Father Fast forward, and Jesus is age 30, and he's just starting his ministry, and he goes into the wilderness, and he is fiercely tempted by the evil one, and he responds to those temptations with the Bible, with the words of Scripture. When you're under temptation, the enemy's number one strategy is to make it feel like the truth. And if he turns up in front of you with like pointy horns and a fork and goes, do this, you're going to go, uh, you're Satan, you're basically bad news, no. So he comes and lies to us through our feelings. And so whether those temptations come to us financially, relationally, hormonally, whatever it is, that, 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 it feels like an internal urge. It's, we, we, we want to give in to the temptation. And when the kind of the ocean of, uh, of circumstance is sweeping us along, peer pressure, the waves of all kinds of temptation, we must be anchored in the Word of God because it's like a rock that you can cling to in uh, the stormy sea. It is true, truer than your feelings today or tomorrow, truer than your own opinions. It is the truth of the ages. And then on the cross, Jesus, even there, under excruciating agony, quotes the scriptures. So deeply embedded within him are these words. And I believe that this same Jesus wants to draw alongside each one of us this morning on our journeys. And he wants to open the Bible to us in a new way so that our hearts might burn as he shows that they all point to him. Lee Mack, the comedian, was on uh, Desert Island Discs. Uh, no, previous one. That's it. Uh, was on Desert Island Discs. And um, as you know, at the end of Desert Island Discs, you are told that on your Desert Island you're going to be allowed the entire works of Shakespeare and the Bible. And then you can have one other luxury. And uh, it's become cool. One or two sort of ardent atheists announced they wouldn't want the Bible, which uh, thereby shows their massive levels of prejudice because uh, if someone's offering you the best-selling book in world history and you say, I actually choose to not have it with me, uh, you're revealing that you are no longer open-minded in any shape or form whatsoever for the God you don't believe in to break in. Let's be quite clear where the prejudice is in our culture right now. And uh, on a day when we learn that the censors have banned a film made by the Church of England, which is simply the words of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, 
which they wanted to f show in cinemas around the country before Star Wars, and uh, th it's been banned, it's been censored, because apparently it's too offensive. There isn't a single word in this one, two-minute video that isn't just straight out of the Bible. But apparently that's too offensive. So this is the culture that we are uh, now uh, living in. But Lee Mack, when he was offered uh, you know, the Bible, the works of Shakespeare on his desert island, said something really interesting. He said, I'm glad you get the Bible, because I would read the Bible. I think it's quite odd that people like myself who are in their 40s are quite happy to dismiss the Bible, but I've never actually read it. <laughs> I always think that if an alien came down and you were the only person that they met and they said, what's life all about? What's earth about? Tell us everything. And you said, well, there is this book out there that purports to tell you everything. But some people believe it to be true. Some people don't believe it to be true. But then they say, wow, what's it like? And you go, uh, don't know. I've never actually got around to reading it. It would be an odd thing, wouldn't it? So at the very least, I would read the Bible on my desert island. He's right. Emmaus is a Bible-believing community. In other words, the Bible is authoritative for us in everything we seek to think and do. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way in which God speaks to us. Um, Paul, writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible is here to equip you to live effectively a, a good life, and it is there, it's, it's useful for teaching you, but also for rebuking you. Just give me a wave if you've ever felt rebuked by this book. Yeah, it can challenge us, can't it? Someone once said, it's not the bits of the Bible I don't understand I have a problem with, it's the bits I do understand and wish I didn't understand because they're so challenging. We believe the Bible is inspired, breathed, literally inspired, breathed by God, but we also believe that the Bible is infallible, completely trustworthy and reliable. Now please note, infallibility is not the same as inerrancy. Inerrancy would mean there is no single error of any kind whatsoever in the pages of Scripture. This is where I might be about to get into trouble. It is possible that there are one or two tiny little bits in the Bible because the Bible was written by human beings uh, who are men and women of their time who, who just didn't quite understand things. And it's possible there's one or two slightly, slight little errors in there without it in any way detracting from the infallibility and inspiration of this book. So here's an example. I'm sure you're all familiar with Leviticus chapter 11, verse 6. Uh, doubtless, it's one you've been meditating on deeply even this morning. 11, 11, Leviticus 11, 6 is fascinating because it bans the Jewish people from eating rabbits. And it says the reason you can't eat rabbits, they are non-kosher, is they chew the cud. Now, even if you only had a rabbit aged 10 in a hutch somewhere at home, you know, hang on, Flossie didn't chew the cud. She, just, she did kind of eat with a sideways jaw motion, but it wasn't chewing the cud. Well, whoever was watching rabbits that day as they wrote the Bible, hmm, looks suspicious, like chewing the cud, banned. And therefore, for generations, Jewish people can't eat rabbits. It was just zoologically wrong. Does that in any way make me think this Bible isn't entirely reliable, doesn't speak profoundly into my life, yeah, it isn't the word of God? No, of course not. I'm just thinking, you know, ordinary people wrote these stories down, but we believe they were inspired by uh, God. It doesn't detract from the Bible's truth. It's overwhelming historical accuracy. We'll talk about that later. And it's universal contemporary relevance and authority. So challenged. I'm sure I wasn't the only one. Three weeks ago when we had Laden speak to us. Laden's part of Emmaus. Uh, she just uh, often would, would be sort of sitting at the back there. And I got talking to her one day and found out she had the most incredible story. Those of you there, you know that she um, is Iranian. She grew up as a Muslim. She came to encounter Jesus Christ uh, when she discovered that amongst the people of Jesus, there's joy. She said, we hadn't had a lot of that. 
I don't think ISIS have a lot of joy. If you get invited to an ISIS party, don't go. It's not very joyous, I suspect. Well, I might be wrong. It might be all sort of the BGS and whatever. I don't know, but I'm just suspecting not. But um, but but she came and she encountered Jesus, and then um, to cut a long story short, as you remember, she got arrested for being a follower of Jesus and preaching the good news about Jesus. Beautiful single woman. I don't know what she early 30s, and in fact, she allowed herself to be arrested. Um, she, they knew the police were coming. Her mum said, we can get you out of it, hide you away. And she prayed about it. She said, no, I've got real peace about letting them arrest me. I'm <laughs> thinking, wow. <laughs> I'd be out of that door. And so they arrest her. As you know, they put her in uh, solitary confinement. Uh, and um, it was a very cold, concrete floor cell, very small with a light that was on the whole time, 24 hours a day. She, to this day, still has back problems from sleeping on that concrete floor. There was water in there, but it was dirty water. That was all she had to drink. And her only human contact was her interrogator. And she said, do you remember? She said, "Um, my greatest um, pain was that it was the first time in my Christian life that I hadn't had the Bible. (laughs) I couldn't read the Bible every day. That was my greatest tragedy. I'm thinking... You're in solitary confinement, sleeping on a concrete floor, drinking dirty water with only human contact, being an interrogator, and your greatest pain is that you didn't have your Bible with you. And I I must confess, I was thinking, how many days of my life have there been when I didn't even pick this book up? I mean, I'm challenged by this woman's example. And then you remember, uh, the interrogator said to her, I'm the king of this prison, this is my kingdom, and I will let you go soon. What I say goes, and she got really excited, and every time she was in her cell, every time she heard a noise at the end of the corridor, she thought, this is the interrogator coming to release me. And it didn't happen, and then the Lord rebuked her. The Lord said to her, Laden, he's not the king of this prison, I am, and you will be released when it's my timing. And she said she got down on the floor and repented of not trusting God enough. I'm just thinking, oh my goodness. You're repenting of not trusting God when you're in solitary confinement for him. And so she said, I trust you. And she did deal with God. She said, if I have to spend the rest of my life in this prison, that's okay. If you'll just give me one week to go out and preach the good news of Jesus. (laughs) Do you remember she stole a pen from her interrogator and began to write Bible verses on the wall of her cell? You, you, you can take the Bible away, but you can't take the Bible out of your heart and your mind. And She said the Holy Spirit was reminding me of verses I hadn't even memorized. Love for the Bible. And so I was deeply challenged by that attitude that she showed. William Wilberforce, uh, the great abolitionist, said this, Carefully studying the Bible will challenge us to reject a superficial understanding of Christianity. And it will impress upon us that it is imperative not to simply be religious or moral, but also to master the Bible intellectually, to integrate its principles into our lives morally, and put it into action what we have learned practically. The Bible, he says, is one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. It seems ludicrous that we have to exhort people to study it. So I was thinking about the Bible in my own life, and you'll have your own stories. In the video of my life, there are so many snapshot moments when the Bible has been my greatest sustenance, wisdom, comfort, and strength. I was thinking how, when I was 18 years old, and I'd given up on Christianity, decided it was all rubbish, and a complete stranger came up to me and said, I've got a picture in my head for you. The picture is, I saw a candle burning in a room and suddenly the flame went out and it went dark. The whole room went dark. And then the candle reignited and it burnt brightly and it lit up the whole room. Do you know what it might mean? And even though I wasn't sure if I believed in God, I thought, well, if there is a God, I think he is speaking because I was like a candle that had gone out. The whole room was dark. And if there was a God, he was saying the light was coming back. But I had no idea what to do about it. How do you make the light come back on? How do you believe something you're not sure if you do believe? And so I went for about two or three months thinking, I think that God might have spoken to me, but I don't know if I believe in God. (laughs) And then it was Christmas time, and I was sorting through some Christmas cards on my grandparents' mantelpiece in Scotland. 
when God spoke to me. And it was a Bible verse written on the back of one of the cards, funnily enough. And the words jumped out, and if you like, they smacked me around the head, defibrillated my heart, woke me up, and suddenly adrenaline was shooting through every neural pathway in my system. By the way, I suspect adrenaline can't go through neural pathways, so don't email me about that. She, you're a tough crowd. The verse that jumped out at me said this, your light will shine when you spend yourself on behalf of the poor and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, Isaiah 58. And I knew God had spoken to me, and I knew it so strongly that if every person in the world had said, God hasn't spoken to you, I would still have known he had. I remember I put on my coat, went out the house, walking through the rain all around the block, trying to get my head around what to do about the fact that the living God had just told me I had to spend myself on behalf of the poor, and the light would come back in my life. Fast forward a little bit. I'd been in McDonald's in Kowloon in Hong Kong. I think I'd just got a strawberry sundae. And I was coming back eating it, and I got a message. There was a phone call from my mum in the office. I went into the office, and I heard my mother's voice telling me that my father had died of a heart attack on a beach on the Isle of Wight. And I suddenly felt quite alone. And I remember I went to my little tin hut that I was staying in. What do you do when there's no one else that you know within thousands of miles who knows the one that you've just lost. And I remembered that I still had a father in heaven. And I remember getting my Bible open and kneeling down by my bed and reading Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And it brought comfort to me in a way that nothing else could. I'll give you so many other examples, but here's one. Just uh, at the moment, some of you will know that um, we're looking for a venue. We're looking for a home for this church. We grow quite fast. And uh, the Lord has spoken to us clearly about that. And a very exciting possibility has just emerged. And we are in the process, perhaps, of, of, of bidding for somewhere uh, over the next 12 days or so. And if you, if you don't know about that and you're in a collective, talk to your collective leader and they'll give you the information. But I've been praying and reflecting on 2 Samuel 7 verse 10, which says this, I will provide a place for my people. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And so I've been praying that scripture. I've been saying, come on then, Lord, provide a place for your people. Plant us so that we can have a home and no longer be disturbed. The word of God, again and again in my life, just speaking, comforting, bringing guidance and wisdom. We live in a world that is in turmoil, morally, politically, economically, socially, at every metric you could possibly think of, there is disruption, confusion. We are awash. We are helpless and hopeless. There are people in this church who work in the center of power, people who come along to these meetings in number 10 Downing Street every day, and the guilty secret they have is, we're still trying to work it all out. How do we do this stuff? What is absolutely true in our lives and in our worlds? And for millions of people, the Bible serves that purpose and has done so for thousands of years, anchoring us in something bigger than ourselves. That's why it sells 44 million uh, copies every single year and they no longer put it on the bestseller list because it would be number one every single month. They're embarrassed that Harry Potter and the Shades of Grey don't even touch the Word of God. 2,000 years later, it's still the biggest selling book in the world because it's truth and it's hope. And when we try and put together a video and just show the Lord's Prayer in the cinemas, we're told it's offensive. How offensive is that? Sorry, I'm getting passionate. I'll calm down. Goodness sake. Who are we without this book? Who are we without this word, this truth, this absolute, this guide, this light, this bread? We'll lose our history. We'll lose our culture. We'll have no clue about our destiny without the word of God. It is the building block of our culture. If you step into the Palace of Westminster, Dave Landrum knows this well. 
in the central lobby there. This is the central lobby between the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And inscribed there in the floor is the scripture that says, Unless the Lord builds the house, ye labour in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house of Westminster, it's all a waste of time. When a queen or a king is crowned in this country, according to our own constitution, as they sit there with the crown on their head and the scepter in their hand, they are presented with a Bible and these words, we present you with this book. It is the most valuable thing this world affords. Wow! You're being made the ruler of millions of people. You're being handed castles and palaces. You've got a gold crown on your head. And you're given this book and said, this is the most valuable thing our world affords. Laden knows that's true. Wilberforce knew that was true. Our constitution knows that is true. It is an absolute in a relative universe. I love that story of, uh, you probably know it, the, 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 the chap in Leicester whose job many years ago was uh, to sound the, the, the great siren, the bell, at 4 p.m. every day in the local factory so that all the workers knew when to knock off work. It's his job. He took it very seriously. And so on his way into the factory every morning, he, it just so happened he passed a, 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 a clockmaker. And he would always stop and pause and look at the, all the clocks in the window and he would just set his watch to make sure that he had it exactly right, 4 p.m. You know, and then he'd go in and he'd sound the alarm. Well, one day, uh, his watch went wrong and so he went into the, uh, the clockmaker and he said, look, um, I, need, I need this fixed. And he said, I'm so grateful. I don't know if you've ever seen, but I stop by your window every single day just to make sure my watch is uh, you know, exactly right because I am the guy who sounds the siren at 4 p.m. every day just up the road. You might have heard it. And the watchmaker said, oh, that's awkward. He said, well, that's awkward. He said, what? What I do is every single day at 4 p.m. when the siren goes, I go and check all my watches to make sure they're exactly synchronized. Our world is a lot like that, isn't it? We're all just surfing off each other, peer pressure, public opinion, political ideology, what just happens to be carried along by the winds of change, the zeitgeist of the time. How do we know what is true? What if there is something that is bigger than us, that is the inbreaking of the Creator, revealing His purpose, His values, the way we are to live? This book is morally as well as historically trustworthy. For example, there were some historians who said that old bit about Pontius Pilate, mm -mm, not right. We found no evidence that there was any kind of governor called Pontius Pilate in Judea at that time. And then in 1961 on the Israeli coast, some archaeologists dug up some stone tablets that went Pontius Pilate, governor, Judea. And they went, oh, so sorry, everybody. Uh, the Bible was actually right. We were wrong all that time. Fast forward a little bit. People used not to like the story about Samson. You know, he had his eyes pulled out. And in his rage, having been, you know, betrayed by this woman because he had a bit of a problem with lust. And, you know, he's there. And, and he goes out, do you remember? And he he pushes on the pillars of this Philistine temple and brings the whole thing down on top of him. And they said, hang on a second, uh, how long were his arms? Was he a gibbon? I mean, how did he reach the two? You know, he had to be very strong. This is an experiment. How strong would you have to be to push in and all this? And then in 1972 in Tel Aviv, they dug up a Philistine temple from around that era and they went, oh, it had wooden pillars and they were extraordinarily close together sorry and then fast forward a little bit 1990 Tel Dan a place called Tel Dan uh, they dug up a stone slab listing the rule and the dynasty of David we go through the historical accuracy of this book is extraordinary 
So maybe you hear all this, you go, oh, that's fine, Pete. We kind of didn't need to come to church. We told the Bible's a big deal. You know, we're aware of that. It's kind of important. It's the Word of God, you know, all that stuff. I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear that it's historically accurate. That I'm now completely free to eat rabbits. I feel deeply assured, reassured um, that if I needed to push down a Philistine uh, temple 3,000 years ago, I, I could have given it a shot. These things are great. It's wonderful. But, Pete, I still find the Bible confusing. I can find it boring sometimes. I find it difficult. And I just want to give you three practical steps on how to read the Bible in a way that it will read you. How to use the Bible well. And the first step is this. When you come to any bit of the Bible, try to understand it, obviously. What was the original writer saying? That might sound obvious, but it's amazing how few Christians do that. They jump to applying it to their situation. For example, the book of Revelation says, uh, you know, well, it says this, and it means that this person is the Antichrist. And, and they, they don't stop to go, but whoa, whoa, at the time, what was John on the island of Patmos actually writing about? Assuming he wasn't in some kind of weird trance, and we know he was writing to some actual churches who were under massive persecution. So we have to ask about the, the context of the writer, what they were trying to say. What was the literary context? In other words, we ask, what type of literature is this that we are reading? Because, as you probably know, the Bible is made up of 66 books, written in three languages by more than 40 authors over a period of more than 1,400 uh, years. It's written by shepherds, farmers, tent makers, doctors, fishermen, priests, philosophers, kings. And it isn't just one type of literature, it's lots of types. There's poetry in there, there's history, biography, allegory, mythology, eroticism, wisdom literature, yes I did say eroticism, apocalyptic predictions, letters, sermons, there's all kinds of literature in these 66 books. And so you read them differently, I hope you do. You know, I hope you don't go out on date nights and say, oh, darling, I just want to read you a bit from a physics textbook. I mean, we understand there's different types of literature for different environments, different moments. We must read the Bible according to its literary context. For example, throwing the cat out amongst the pigeons here, can I suggest that the book of Genesis was not written as a science textbook? Uh-oh. Prepare the inbox. Um, <laughs> We must also ask questions about cultural context. What did this mean in the original cultural context in which it was written? And by the way, if you're saying, well, I don't have a clue, I don't, I don't know. Well, you know, it's worth investing in some commentaries, some Bible commentaries. Yes, books. You cannot get these on Google. It's stunning. You can get really rubbish commentaries on Google, like Matthew Henry. It's rubbish. It's, no, it's not worth reading Matthew Henry's commentaries everywhere on the internet, but it's not very good. The best series to get, I think, are made by IVP, and they're called The Bible Speaks Today, BST, and you can buy one for pretty much each book of the Bible and you get people like John Stott who was a big deal explaining the book of Romans to you and, and I think if someone like John Stott has taken the trouble to explain the book of Romans to me I might spend five quid on buying the book so just a thought but if you're thinking well how do I get, invest a little bit in this stuff what was the cultural context we ask these questions all the time I can tell because I think there are almost no women here with any covering on their head even though there's a bit in the Bible that says women in worship a church should have their heads covered. Why? Are you a bunch of disobedient heretics? No, it's because you understand that Paul was writing in a context where for women to expose their hair in public was almost an act of prostitution. It was seen as so erotic. And so he says, look, you're free in Christ, but please have some respect for the culture. Cover your heads. And then some people go, oh, the Bible says it, so we must do it. But they're not asking the cultural context question. The, the, if we're going to apply the spirit of that, it might be Paul saying, do you know what, ladies, you are free in Christ, you've been wonderfully healed up, could you not wear your lowest cut top and your shortest skirt and dance at the front on Sunday? It's not helpful. Do you understand? We've got to get the heart of it by understanding the original context. Um, elsewhere. I mean, you might read in the Gospels, some of it says, Jesus reached out and touched her, and we say, oh, that's nice, reassuring, Pat. Terribly pastoral, Jesus, wonderful. 
What we miss is that in the context at the time, uh, no man would touch a woman that he didn't know intimately because they believed, the religious uh, uh, rules said that if a woman was menstruating and you touched her, you became ritually unclean. So you would only touch someone if you knew them well enough to know whether they were on their period. And Jesus is going, this is rubbish. That's what he's basically doing. So when it's, he reached out and touched her, you think, oh, they would have gone, oh my goodness, he touched her. And, and he's, it's a defiant moment on the part of Christ. And we kind of miss it. The, the wonder of who he was. Oh, let's take another one. We talk about the phrase, turn the other cheek. And as many of you know, that comes from Jesus. Teach, he taught us that you, you should turn the other cheek. But let me explain uh, just a lovely bit of historical context on that. Um, Chris Leach, come, come, come and let me hit you a second, if that's right. Um, Chris is our chairman, um, so this is something I've been wanting to do for a while. Now, um, <laughs> G- G- Jesus, uh, Jesus says, um, if someone hits you on the right cheek, uh, which is your right cheek, you're very good, then you should allow them to hit you on the left, okay? Turn the other cheek. And we go, basically Jesus is saying, ultimate pacifism, you know, just allow people to walk all over you. So we're just going to do this a second, if that's all right. So right cheek is this. You can act a little bit. I mean, this is pathetic, Chris, frankly. So, otherwise, I'm going to have to actually do it. So, so right cheek is this. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Hands still in pockets, but pretty good. And then he offers me left, he offers me left cheek. Okay. Good. My, um, just for those who are recording, our chairman is camping it up. And um, <laughs> but here, notice what happened there. I hit him first of all with the back of my hand because that's how. <laughs> feel so good. It because that that's what you did to someone who was subservient to you. Back of your hand. Why? Because it's harder. You get the knuckles. If someone was your equal, you would hit them with the flat of your hand on the left cheek. So here's what Jesus is saying when we know a bit about the historical context. He's saying, if someone just treats you as a slave, as a nothing, you stand up, you look them in the eyes, and you say, this time you're going to hit me again. But you're going to do it this time with the flat of your hand because I'm your equal. Do you understand? It's not weak pacifism, it's defiant pacifism. So that might have some implications for Jeremy Corbyn or whatever else. It's relevant. Do a round of applause, please, for Chris Leakes. Thank you so much. So it's quite fun to start to really try and understand the cultural context, the literary context. We need to understand the textual context, i.e., don't use the Bible like the Argos catalogue. Flicking through it, find something you fancy. Ooh, I need a left-handed bread maker. Hmm. That plays me the hits of One Direction whilst I make bread. Christmas sorted. You know, it's not meant to be used like that, and yet so many people do. They just sort of, it's lucky dip. Well, let's find a verse for today. Hmm, what's that? You know, there was a man who did that once. I need a word from God. Flick through. And it said, Judas went and hung himself. And you thought, hmm, that's not what I want to hear. So he tried it again. And then the next one said, go thou and do likewise. He thought, this is not helpful. You're meant to think about the context. What, not just a verse on its own, but how does it fit with all of the rest? And that brings me to my final uh, part of this, this section, the Christological context. That means, what's the Jesus context, the Christ context on this? We read the whole of the Bible in the light of Christ. That's what we re- read in the Emmaus Road stories in verse 27. He says he shows how the whole of the scriptures point to him. This is his books. The Old Testament builds up to Jesus And then from there on, it's about Jesus in the Gospels. And then Paul is working out the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for the church and his coming again. And so we read things in the light of Jesus. The theologians talk about the Old Testament being a book of progressive revelation. They're they're getting increasing revelation of who God is and how he uh, works and what he says. And so, for example, when there are those difficult passages that seem to talk about genocide in the Old Testament. We must read that in the light of Christ, who said, love your enemies, you know, and forgive those who, who mistreat you. 
So, so we read the Bible in the context of what we know about Jesus. We don't just read it all equally. St. Augustine said the whole Bible does nothing but tell of God's love. Raniero Cantalamesso, who's been the preacher to three successive popes, says this, This is the message that supports and explains all the other messages in the Bible. The love of God is the answer to all the whys in the Bible. The why of creation. The why of the incarnation. The why of redemption. If the written word of the Bible could be changed into a speaking, spoken word and become one single voice, this voice more powerful than the roaring of the sea would cry out, The Father loves you. John 16, 27. Everything that God does and says in the Bible is love. Even God's anger is nothing but love. God is love. So we read the text in the context of the bigger picture. So we think about the literary context, the cultural context, the textual context, the Christological context. Lots of contexts. All I'm trying to say is, when you, first of all, when you come to the Bible, try to understand it. What was the original writer trying to say? But secondly, explore it. Explore what God might be saying to you now through it. Not just what was the author trying to say back then, but here today now in the circumstance you're in. What might God be saying to me today through it? Because we believe it is living and active and relevant to us today. D.L. Moody, the great preacher, said, The Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Scripture is the manger in which the Christ lies. Don't let us inspect the cradle and forget to worship the baby. And so we don't want to just understand the Bible. We want to use it devotionally. We want to let God speak into our lives through it. And there are many ways you can do that. One of the things I love to do is, say I'm reading something from one of the Gospels, the story of Jesus. I love to use my imagination to read between the lines, really think my way into the story. I might ask the five senses question. So, for example, if you take Jesus uh, on the Sea of Galilee calming the storm, you remember that one? He's out in the boat, he falls asleep, and, and, and the disciples are there seasoned fishermen have lived their whole lives on this particular lake but they think they're going to drown it's that stormy and they wake Jesus up, he stands up, he rebukes the storm and calms the waves and they fall on their knees and go you really are the Lord so fine, we could do questions about the historical context but let's use our five senses on it Okay, this is how we can start to use it devotionally so first of all I might think what are we hearing? you think And then there's that banging, you know, when a wave hits the side of a boat, bang, bang, and things are getting thrown about. Oh, I just heard Peter blaspheme. Oh, my goodness, I didn't know that was in the Bible. He got hit on the head, you know? And there are raised voices, you know, those slightly tense raised voices when, when people are scared. And, and so you're hearing all of that. And maybe there's ropes flapping around. And, then, and I'm thinking, uh, what are we smelling? Oh, my goodness, a fishing boat. There's fish in the bottom. In fact, in the bottom of that boat, I can, there is a fish. It's bleeding. It's dead, but it's not. That's not nice. I'm going to chuck that out of the boat. I can smell fish in there and that damp smell. And also, they're men and they've been up all night and they've been working quite hard. There's a bit of B.O. floating around here. Did you ever know there's B.O. around Christ? You never thought of that? There is. I've smelt it. Do you understand? As you, as you start to use your five senses, the thing comes alive. And do you know what? Before long, you find yourself in the boat. And then, this is where it gets really interesting, you start to think, Jesus, can I just chat to you about this a little bit? And we're going to move on to our third point here. Can I just chat to you? I feel like you're asleep, asleep in the boat. I'm under a lot of pressure right now. I'm really scared about a bunch of things. And you're sleeping? Could you please trouble yourself? To wake up. I kind of need you right now. I feel like I'm drowning. Could you please speak peace to the storm? Could you, 
you are kind of the Lord. You're a big deal around here. Could you, could you just calm things down for me a bit? And then maybe I spend a bit of time and I start to feel that beautiful peace of God settling in on my life. And realizing maybe it's going to be okay. And it's like the, the, the storms settle down. You know, sometimes you can't change your circumstance, but you can always change your relationship to the circumstance. Jesus really helps with that. And then you find yourself falling on your knees going, you really are the Lord. I just worship you. I'm so grateful I've got you in the boat with me. You understand? This, is, this was not a study exercise. This has become a deeply devotional exercise. And so we start to allow God to speak through uh, the scriptures between the lines, within the words. We ask, what is the text saying? What is God saying? And what am I going to say to him about it? We don't just study the Bible. We pray the Bible. Let me read you a beautiful quote as we finish from Mark Batterson who wrote a terrific book on prayer called um, The Circle Maker. What I'm about to share has the power to revolutionize the way you pray and the way you read the Bible. We often view prayer, he says, and scripture reading as two distinct spiritual disciplines without much overlap. But what if they were meant to be hyperlinked? One of the primary reasons that we don't pray through to breakthrough is because we run out of things to say. Our lack of persistence is really a lack of conversation pieces. It's like an awkward conversation. We don't know what to say to God. Our prayers are as meaningless as a conversation about the weather. The solution, pray through the Bible. Prayer was never meant to be a monologue. It was meant to be a dialogue. Think of Scripture as God's part of the script and prayer as our part. Scripture is God's way of initiating a conversation. Prayer is our response. The paradigm shifts when you realize that the Bible wasn't meant to be read through. The Bible was meant to be prayed through. And if you pray through it, you will never run out of things to talk to God about. There are conversation starters on every page of this book. Let's read it. Let's be like Laden, who never goes a day without the Word of God. But let's not just read it and study it. Wilberforce said it's vital we study it, that we move beyond superficial Christianity. But let's pray it. Let's use this as God's primary, not only way, of speaking into our lives. And let us respond to him in prayer. Jesus says that when we pray in line with God's will, miracles happen. How do you know what God's will is? He's revealed it in his word. Get hold of his promises. And wherever they're not happening, pray them into being. And you know that there'll be the miracle working power of God behind your request. What we're going to do now is we're going to do, this is going to be a bit unusual. We're going to finish by listening to God together by feeding on his words together and um, so the band's just going to come up if that's alright guys wow do you finish your cigarette alright John okay good um, <laughs> this is for visitors you don't, you don't smoke do you no you don't smoke <laughs> I could see the third raft of emails on its way to me uh, Jesus says, man shall not live, woman shall not live by bread alone, but by every single word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Every word that the Father speaks. And so he's saying that it, it, you don't just get hungry physically, right? You, 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 of course we do. We, we, we want food, unless there's something wrong with us. We long for food when we get hungry. And if we don't eat, we get lethargic and we waste away. He's saying, just as you know that's true physically, it's also true spiritually. There is a craving in your soul for the Word of God. The comfort, the wisdom, the revelation, the challenge and rebuke, the encouragement of Scripture. And if you don't feed spiritually on the Word of God, you'll fade away. You'll be half the person you can be. You'll lack spiritual energy. You'll merely be marooned in your own circumstance and psychology, never raised above it by the purpose and the Word of God. And so we want to feed on the Word of God. 
So what we're going to do now, just as the band plays slightly new age style music, is um, can I just encourage you to? Do we have a whale noise? <laughs> Sorry. Um, what we're going to do now is I'd love you just to get hold of a Bible if you've got one on your phone or if you've, you've got the, hipst, the hipster version. <laughs> Vinyl, Bible in a book form. I'd love you just to get hold of a verse and just think about it slowly. Sometimes we're so busy trying to read big chunks of the Bible, we don't just read one verse of the Bible. One word, one phrase, let it jump out at you. Sometimes I take a verse of the scriptures to the gym with me and I just, as I'm on the rowing machine, just go over and over that one verse until a word or a phrase jumps out at me. If you're new to this, here's a great one you could think about. Romans 8, 28. It says this, All things work together for good for those who love God. All things work together for good for those who love God. Even the bad stuff can become good stuff if you love God. But just, just spend a little bit of time, a few minutes now, in a busy life, noisy world. Find a verse. You might want to download the Bible in One Year app. It's absolutely brilliant. I use it almost every day. read a verse, think what was the original writer trying to say and then ask what might God be trying to say to me through this and you might want to then just pray it, just talk back to him about whatever that one thing is you get out of that verse love just a, a few people that maybe make their way down the front with, with a verse that you think might be an encouragement to others here. Some are loving this, some probably find this quite difficult, but just lovely if one or two just want to come down with promises, words of encouragement from scripture that might feed people, give people life and encouragement as they uh, move on from this meeting in a moment. So it'd just be great to get a few, just not long, we, we, we don't want entire chapters, but if you've just got a verse that you think, I love this verse, and I think this would be a blessing to others, just it'd be great to share that. So uh, just make your way down one or two now, it'd be great. And just while they're coming, I'll kick off. I've been thinking about the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I just wonder if there's some people here, you're knackered and you're weak. And God just wants to say to you, the battle is around your joy. And you know that. And, and, and he's asking you just to think, what are, what are the sources of joy in your life? And how can you embrace those? Because that's where he will give you strength from. So the joy of the Lord is your strength. Maybe that's for someone. Sam. Thanks, Pete. <clears throat> We've um, had some challenging mornings as a family recently, uh, the last few weeks. And the verse that God just revealed to us was from Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So each morning this week, that's what we'll do. So we read it, and then we pray it. We pray it into being. Who's, who's next? Just come on through. Don't just 
first come, first serve. Mine ties into that really well. Um, Psalm 36, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Brilliant. Beautiful reminder. Who's next? I have um, Proverbs uh, 23, verse 17, which says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous or passionate for the fear of the Lord. And that always helps me because sometimes I struggle like comparing myself to other people like maybe looking for a magazine and being like oh she's so pretty and I'm you know I want to be like that and I want to be like this and I get jealous of other people when actually the Bible reminds us that we're all sinners and actually we should be passionate for the fear of the Lord not actually comparing ourselves to other people but actually um comparing ourselves to Jesus and that um being yeah who we want to aim for so yeah yeah, don't trade being pretty for a few years for being ugly on the inside. Choose lifelong beauty and it will filter through to the way you look. Who's next? Um, the verse that came to my mind is James 3, verse 17. And it says, um, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And it just really reminds me that nothing can beat the wisdom of God. Brilliant. So some of you here might just think, right, I'm going to think about James 3, verse 17 tomorrow, and I'm going to pray about each of those words because I want to be wiser. And there's a beautiful list there. How could I be more sincere today? A little bit less sarcastic. Um, Etc. So that's James 3.17. Who's next? Um, this is just my verse of the day. Uh, quite a few of you might have this, but it just says, it's Isaiah 25, verse 1. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. That's beautiful. Okay, last one. This is basically just like um, not worrying about the future, and it's um, Proverbs 31 25. She's clothed with strength and dignity, and lasts without fear of the future. Whatever comes your way, you just see to just believe in God that He'll be there for you, and He will. Thank you so much. Isn't it cool that we've got these riches to help navigate us through life and anchor us in something bigger than us, knowing there's a God of love, He's with us, He's for us. So let's just stand together and let's just draw all of this together. One final song. This is one of the ways we pray back to God, the truth of Scripture. These songs are just singing prayers and singing His words to us. So let's finish with this.